We're going to start a new fall series. We're going to start with a memory verse that's going to be long. The good news is, is it's the same memory verse from, I think, two fall series ago, okay? <laughs> we, we are going to add more memory verses over the course of the series, and if you remember this one, then you can add some just from this sermon. I'll give you some good ideas as we go. Um, but uh, this morning, I'm just going to read the scripture, um, but then it's going to be our memory passage for this series, okay? And I'm, you'll find out why as I work through it this morning. So if you want to read it out loud with me to begin the process or of remembering it or learning it, you can. Um, that's totally cool, all right? His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will fail and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right. Um, a couple of weeks ago, um, Jill and I started working pretty hard on changing the fall series. Not all that much, but to be framed a little bit differently. Um, and so at the end of the service, of the first services, we are still going to have the Ask Me Anything portion. You can ask questions here in the sanctuary by going to highpointchurch.org slash live or at home if you're watching. And I'm going to be kind of reliant on you to ask good questions because um, this is not a 25-minute topic I'm going to be talking about right now. And so it, I, we're going to have to work this through a little bit improvisationally as you ask questions and then I answer them later, okay? Because I don't know, not everybody's in the same place with all of this stuff that I'm going to talk about. And not everybody's going to process it the same way. And um, fewer words will get through it faster, but there's a lot more room for misunderstanding. Do you understand? Um, so please also listen sympathetically instead of for offense. One of the things that's become clear is that um, there is a effect from what we've experienced so far in 2019. I'm just calling it the 2020 vortex where a lot of things have come together to make this year very unlike other years for most of us in the United States, in, in the city of Madison. Um, there has been, obviously the coronavirus has been the biggest deal affecting everyone and nobody can seem to get away from it. Um, though in the hinterlands, they're much less affected than us in the urban areas. Um, there's been all the stuff about racial justice and policing and then consequently issues related to rioting. And that's all been a big thing. Um, we've had fires and hornets and presidential candidates whose campaigns and personalities are somewhat indistinguishable from fires and hornets. And um, also Cardi B continues to write and release music. And so all of these things have sort of come together to create all kinds of issues that we're all 
emotionally dealing with. Now, for some people, um, 2020 has been a truly catastrophic year. Um, well, there's one young man who lost his mom to, co- to the coronavirus in our church. There's other people who have lost their livelihood and they don't know what they're going to do after this and they don't know if they're going to have be able to be in their house next year, okay? For some people, this year has been catastrophic, okay? That's not true for the majority of us. For the majority of us, this has been a crappy year, okay? It's been a year where um, we have— it's been kind of like a stress test, right? So like, when you get a certain age, after the age of your first colonoscopy, there's this point where you have to go to the hospital and you, they hook up all these little electrodes to you, right? And they get you like on the treadmill or a bike and they like slowly speed that thing up because what they're testing is whether or not your cardiovascular system can hold up under stress, right? They want to know how blocked your arteries are or whatever so that you don't just have a heart attack and die, which is really great. I mean, I, I lost my grandfather when I was in seventh grade to a massive heart attack and he, he probably would not have died at that age. Both my grandfathers died of massive heart attacks actually. One when I was three and one when I was in seventh grade. And, and it was a huge loss for me. And, and both of those would have been prevented. I would have had more years of them if we'd have had a system. So I, I take this very seriously. I'm not joking about stress tests, okay? It's one of the reasons why, you know, Mike is still alive too. Um, so, um, so you basically run, they try to, and they try to give you a heart attack is basically what they do, right? They like, they, they try to see what you can do and then they try to stress you. Now, the reason why this matters is because they're not creating a problem. They're trying to reveal an underlying problem that you wouldn't know was there and killing you without them stressing your environment enough to really figure out what's going on in your heart. Does that make sense? And in a certain way, this year, 2020, has been like a stress test on a lot of us. Right? And the question is, how are you doing? What is, what is the stress test revealed? Um, over the last few months, I've been interviewing a lot of people. I've been obviously doing all counseling at church. All of our staff has— um, and our elders, we've been praying for people. We've been calling through our whole directory. Hopefully you've gotten a phone call from somebody on our staff team or our elders asking just how you're doing, praying with you on the phone. Um, I've been interviewing pastors in different parts of the country, in Boston and Chicago and um, California, asking like, what's going on in your church? What's going on with people in your church? And I've been talking to as many people as I can. And what I'm finding in all of those areas, pretty much across the board, is that people are really emotionally struggling more than most of them have for a very long time or ever. From all different kinds of walks of life, all different kinds of ages, all different kinds of lifestyles or stages of life, all those kinds of things, right? And these are the kinds of things I hear over and over and over again. I just feel really tired and fatigued. I don't have any motivation. I just feel kind of emotionally dead. I feel just diminished as a person because of how my life is being controlled. I feel more iterable or angry or anxious or fearful or— like, I know there are certain things I know I'm supposed to do to feel better or to be better, and I just don't have any motivation to do them. I just keep neglecting them. Or I, have, I just feel really isolated, and that's weighing heavily on me. Or I have fears of anxiety about all kinds of things, whether it's sickness or death, or the presidential election, and what's going to happen, or what's going on with racial justice, whether we'll have any progress, or where things will get worse, right? And part of that is often, I just find turning to God is just harder for some reason. It's just harder to just turn to him because I just don't want to or I don't feel like it. I just don't feel driven to do it. One of the things I think that this, um, this uh, 2020 vortex has demonstrated is that predominantly among us as Americans and as American Christians and as urban Christians, um, that we've got resilience issues. 
And I, I think that the reason for that is, is that most people build the resilience they need in their environment, right? You could think of it this way. Um, there's maybe three ovals of um, protective resources that make us resilient, one, right? One is our environment. So that, that would be like your culture, your politics, the polit- political system, the medical system, the food system, the educational system. There's all these systems that we have that are like macro systems that are impersonal to us, but that affect us, right? And these are probably the most advanced they've ever been in any human society in all time. And they're, it's pretty amazing, right? And it, what's interesting in 2020 is that these got stressed and they didn't break, but they, they, we st- they still were a little terrifying, right? I mean, the stock market still went, boo! And we had, we are having like a lot of social unrest and gosh, can't we find better presidential candidates? And like, like, you know, the foods, like we had to, you know, we had, we could only buy so much bread making flour, but there was always food in the grocery store. Like there's all these kinds of like, it was, it was, it didn't break, but it seemed like there was a signal that there was a fragility. Like if this had been worse, it could have all broken. And that's a little terrifying. Does that make sense? And it stresses us a little bit. And what that does is it puts pressure on the next circle of human resilience, which is our social resilience. Now that doesn't mean like society. What it means is the small tribal circle of people who you care about, who can count on you and who you count on. It's between five and 150 people, depending on some variables. But it's not usually a very big group. Usually it's less than 30 for most people. These are the people you care about and who care about you. You depend on and they depend on you, right? If you just feel like you're in a terrible mood or you're like, really, something really bad happens, who would you turn to, right? And what we've known for a while and what's coming up more heavily right now is the fact that Americans are actually in a worse place than ever with this. Incidentally, people who actually believe in Jesus and actually go to church at least once a month, which is not very much, frankly, um, tend to be doing better in this. But the average American man has less than one friend, right? Um, and it's not because he has too many kids. We've got fewer kids than ever, right? And our social bonds just really aren't that good, right? And, and so our, so our social resilience is less than it's ever been, which means that the pressure gets through to our personal resilience. How strong are you emotionally? What internal resources do you have to overcome the problems, the stresses, the anxieties in your life? And the answer is not, not as much as maybe we thought. Not as much as maybe we thought. And there's a, there's a explainable reason for this is that you normally build the resilience you need because resilience is hard to build. Emotional strength is hard to build. Emotional sanctification is a hard thought, right? You, it's not that hard to learn doctrine. It's not that hard to like learn a bunch of stuff about God. That's actually pretty easy to do. But to work that through all the parts of you, all the hurts and brokennesses, all the parts of you that don't agree and won't align with each other, all the rifts of sin that exist within the human soul, and to bring yourself into a single emotional heart-centered integrity in which you are really that person in a way that is strong and resilient is incredibly difficult and painful and embarrassing work. And we tend to do, as human beings, as little as possible. Just enough to make it in our environment, right? But what that means is, like a 64-year-old with 97% blocked arteries, you don't—you feel like you're doing fine until they put you on a treadmill. And then you feel like you're having a heart attack, and you find out you need bypass surgery. Does that make sense? And what I'm, what I'm trying to tell you is that um, 
I think that, and, and I don't say this flippantly or lightly, I have been praying about this for actually a number of years, relative to our church and relative to myself. I think that some of the glories of modern society and what it's produced in terms of resiliency for us, which is wonderful, has the natural effect of making us unresilient and heartless people. That's what I think. It's really sad, right? If we were good, if men and women were angels, this wouldn't be a problem that we, ha- we were living in an advanced society. It'd be really great. We would have penicillin, and we would have street tacos, and we would have, like, exciting glowing rectangles, and we would have robust relational circles of love and enjoyment, and we would have huge emotion-filled hearts restored in Christ to love God and love each other in incredible ways. And we would be full, full, full. And there's nothing wrong with seeking to be advanced in society. It's part of the creation mandate. We were made to do it. God created science and technology. That's—he made us capable of working it and working through it. But what it does when that comes in contact with the sinful nature and where we are in the flesh and how we are easily drawn to worldliness is— well, we don't want to go any further than we have to. So the more advanced that resilient society becomes, the less we become rich socially and strong personally. Because who wants to do all that painful work? Probably the most common thing I hear now when I counsel people with really significant spiritual emotional issues is we talk about um, what it's going to take and in in what every single one of them says is, I know that's right, but I don't want to do it. <laughs> I mean, that's so much pain and so much work. And, the first, and now the next sentence out of my mind is, or next sentence out of my mouth is, sweetie, there ain't no way but through. There just ain't no way but through. And then we just sit there and lament it for a few minutes. Because that's what it's going to take. And I'm not saying that you can't be saved if you don't experience a profound heart renovation right now. I'm not saying that. God saves people in the broken states that they're in, and he accepts them and loves them in the broken states that they're in. Do you understand? But if you want to experience God's salvation, if you want to actually receive what he's giving— more than just forgiveness and final glorification. If you want everything in between, if you want the purpose of your life, if you want to know what you were saved for, if you don't want to wallow in the things that are constantly corrupting your life or making you unable to be the thing you always wanted to be or know that you should be in God and in yourself, then we can't be empty-hearted people. We can't be heartless. We can't allow— our hearts to be stone, right? And it's really terrifying for both men and women to face the facts of this and that this is what God wants from us, right? All right, I just said that bit. So one of the things—I I talked to one pastor who very, was very helpful, and he said— I was talking to him about this, and he said, Nick, um, whenever you hear hoofbeats, think horses first before zebras. 
right? Be- and the reason for that was, as he said, don't jump over the idea that six months into like quarantining and all the stuff that's going on, people are experiencing just run-of-the-mill burnout. And I agree with that, right? I'm actually going on a pastor retreat this week um, for four days with other pastors in South Dakota to try to, so that I'm not burning out when you're burning out, right? Mike said to me, this pastor, he said, Nick, he said, your people are going to need a calm and energetic spiritual presence right when they're burning out, and you have to not be burning out then, right? And so I've been, I've been working on that for like a month to make sure that doesn't happen. Do I, do I seem calm and energetic? I don't know, but I'm trying, okay? So, it, so but what this feels like is burnout and anxiety for the most part. Like if you're, if you're like, what, like, I just kind of feel bad. Right. That's what it feels like. But the question is, why and what do you do about it? Right? We get burned out and we feel anxious and we get these symptoms that I spoke about at the beginning when we get to the end of ourselves, when we run out of spiritual and emotional resources. It's not when we run out of intellectual resources. People don't get burned out because they can't come up with something to think about. Do you understand? It's not like— And so if you're one of these people that like you solve your problems with your brain, right? That's great. There's so many problems you can solve with your brain. It's great. Fantastic. There's a bunch you can't. And how, how much you have, what you can deal with, how much resilience, how strong you are, is the issue of the heart. It's that place where everything comes together. It's in, in that place, how strong the heart is determines what you can take, how fast you recover, how slowly you get burned out, and whether or not you'll even recognize that you are burned out. Because you have to have a heart to know when you lose it. Right? If you've been broken and empty-hearted your whole life, never coming from the traumas that you faced, and then you just kind of feel dead now, you're just like, well, I guess I kind of always felt this way. Right? I remember the doctor said to Mike when he got his bypass surgery, he said, they said, listen, after a few weeks, you're going to feel a surge of energy that you've, you haven't had for years. Right? I've, you see this with people in abusive relationships where you talk with them and they're like, is this wrong? What's happening in this relationship? Because I've been in it so long, I don't know what's weird and what isn't. Right? And they need somebody from the outside to be like, no, that's not normal. It's not normal. And then when they get out, they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know more was possible. That happens with the human heart. A lot of us, we've, ne- we've ne- a lot of us have never felt what the human heart can feel. And we think that it's, the, it's temperament. So like, well, I'm just not excitable. I just don't have emotions. It's just who I am. It's, no, it's not. It's, that's not who you are. You're not just an introvert and therefore don't have feelings. Okay? The, the two do not correlate. There's no correlation between that. There's no correlation with any human temperament and empty-heartedness. One of the most emotionally and spiritually alive people America has ever known is Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards had one of the most melancholy temperaments known to mankind. Right? His wife literally wrote a book called Being Married to a Difficult Man. <laughs> and he would struggle. And, and some people, like for example, William Cooper wrote some of the most, most beautiful hymns about the beauty and joy and glory of God lived in Isaac Watts' house for years because of his debilitating depression. But his heart had recovered enough that even in his clinical depression, he had, he had moments of joy, right? His, his heart could weep in the midst of all that pain. So don't, don't dismiss that part of redemption is the redemption of heart. The part of redemption of heart is the redemption of provident emotion and a full heart. And, and don't let yourself disbelieve that this is fundamental and unavoidable in becoming a wholehearted and full disciple of Jesus. All right. Good. That was a good like 
Completed thought. Amen. I like that. All right. I want you to notice that um, in the progression of the virtues mentioned in um, 2 Peter 1, 5 to 7, the apostle says, add your faith goodness to goodness knowledge to knowledge, and then he says self-control to self-control perseverance to perseverance godliness to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. I, I, what I, one of the things I want us to see in this series is that we often think of self-control as a like a heartless discipline. It's like you just got to run your wind sprints. Well, what gets you through your wind sprints? Right? Like if you've ever been an athlete— and you've gone through like the really rigorous workouts to try to be a little bit physically in better shape than your opponent, what gets you through that? Right? Well, it's your love for the sport and your love for the team. It's your heart. It's your heart that gets you through that. And what gets you through it long term? It's your heart for that thing. And what makes you kind? Why, why, why do you have to have self-control and perseverance before you can really excel in brotherly kindness? Is kindness that hard? And the answer is, it is. Yes, it is hard to be kind. Especially right now. Especially if you live in a culture and in a city that is struggling with an increased heartlessness and more anger. It becomes increasingly difficult to be kind in a brotherly way to everybody, right? And you have to have self-control and perseverance already. That is, you have to have that much emotional resilience in store, ready for action, prepared, strong, so that when the environment of kindness breaks down and the social relations of kindness breaks down, your personal, internal resilience and strength to be kind anyway into the social relationships and into the environment to heal it is strong enough. Right? And even beyond that is the strength necessary to love. You see, without, without a wakeful heart, without God creating us provident emotion, we can't have self-control, persevere, be godly, have real brotherly kindness and love. You can't yourself persevere or fulfill your purpose to everyone else, which is love, without a full heart, without emotional sanctification, without spiritual emotion. What I want to do just for a couple of minutes is— I, I want to talk about—I just want to say a couple things about why this is biblical. Because I, what I, the last thing I want anybody to do is to listen to me speak this morning um, and say, well, we got some good psychology in church today. Right? Because if you're the sort of person that's like a good Bible person, which is really good, I like to think that I'm a good Bible person. And if you are avoidant of emotional development in Christ— You'll listen to what I'm saying, and what you'll hear is psychobabble claptrap, and you'll be like, ugh, that was so unbiblical. God wants us to, like, believe and trust him and just walk with him, right? Um, yes, absolutely, and no. Part of trusting him and walking with him is walking in the path he's laid forward for your healing, formation, and strengthening in heart. That is part of that sanctification process. When, when the Bible says that you're to be made like Christ, is it like Christ in every way except dead-hearted? Or do you think Jesus was dead-hearted? The man who burst into angry tears at the side of Lazarus? The man who was angry enough to flip over tables but not hurt anybody when he went to the temple? The man who said to the people who were full of religious hypocrisy, how do you, how do you believe 
that you could escape the damnation of hell. The person who saw people, and it said when he saw a crowd, that they, he saw and he felt he, that they were harassed like sheep without a shepherd, and he forewent sleep and eating, so much so that his family thought he was going to go crazy because he wanted to tend to the needs of the people that were coming to him. There is no one. And then the passion he finished with. There is no one who has ever lived. Perfect humanity in Christ is perfect full-heartedness. Tears, lamenting, sorrow, righteous anger, joy. G.K. Chesterton said the only part of the full heart of Jesus that probably the Bible hasn't recorded because we're supposed to wait to have it to see it is the mirth, the laughter. Which is fitting. He was playing Johnny Cash, right? Like, it was Johnny Cash, all you say, I dress in black because people are in prison and people's lives are being destroyed and we don't live in a happy world. When I live in a better place, I'll wear white. And it makes sense that maybe Jesus was doing that too. But he still had it in here. And so, let me make two quick arguments about this and then we're going to spend the next five weeks on how to pursue it. Okay, uh, what I want you to leave with today is th- this idea that um, we are avoidant naturally of spiritual sanctification, of emotional transformation, of loving God with all our heart. And that we have to—this st- we, th- is not going to work. And 2020 is beginning to show you practically that it doesn't work. Just in real practical ways it doesn't work. But here's, this, here's the thing. Our neighbors here in Madison, they've needed more from us for a long time, heart-wise. My family has needed more from me for a long time. My wife has needed more. You have needed more from me for a, for a long time. And everybody in your life is going to need a full-hearted you if they're going to survive and be redeemed and win the battle of their lives. It's not enough. Where you are, it's it's not. Even if you think you're going to persevere, maybe you're not without more heart, and you sure as heck aren't going to be full of brotherly kindness or ever achieve what Jesus meant by love without it. Okay, so here's a quick argument about this. Let's see if I can find my little slide. Okay, I just said that. There we go. How do we know God cares very intently about what we might call spiritual emotion? Um, think about for a second every virtue God says we should be seeking to add to our faith in sanctification, okay? So I'm, I'm just going to use for—and um, you could do this with all the sins, too, of the flesh, that they're all heartless, that they don't have provident emotion, that they just give in to, to a shallow, um, earth-licking desire— rather than a full-hearted, provident emotion. You can do that with all the sins, but I'm just going to focus on one set of virtues. So let's just look at—in Galatians 5, there's this verse that's usually called the fruit of the Spirit. Just let's just look at that list for a second, right? It says, Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit—he just talked about the works of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, generousness, gentleness, and self-control. Now just look at the first four, right? Now think about somebody doing one of those to you not full of emotion. (laughs) 
I mean, just imagine the, uh, the operativeness, the operation of any of these virtues not filled with provident emotion, full-heartedness. Do you want to be loved that way? Would you even recognize love as love? Would you think it was love? If somebody sought to love you, but didn't have any kind of full-hearted emotion about it, right? They were willing to serve you, but not care about you or enjoy you. Is that what you're looking for in life? Oh, I was, I'm, I've always been looking for my soulmate. Somebody who'll just always be there, but doesn't like me, celebrate me, or enjoy me. That's what I'm looking for. Think I can find that? Yes, you could definitely find that. Yeah. Or think about, think about a non-emotional joy. It doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even make sense, right? Or think about peace. What is peace, right? You'd be like, well, peace is a state of mind. It's so, yeah, it's a sort of state of mind, but it's really an emotional state, isn't it? It is, it is the calm presence, recognizing truths that you've, you've attained through knowing something, but those truths have now—they're re- residing in you relative to everything else that's competing for your attention. In the heart, being able to place the, what is right at the center and push what is not in control out to the peripheries in proportion so that you can hold a peace of heart amidst all things, no matter what's going on, and offer that peace to people, right? Or patience. You should— <laughs> Part of our heartlessness is the incredible irritability we all see around us. One of the things that, 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 um, that is very striking, so my wife and I lived in the South before we lived in Madison, and um, irritability with people publicly is not allowed, right? Um, and in, in New York, people would just yell at you. You know what I mean? But they were like really coarse. Um, there's something about the Midwest where we, we're just irritated. Because people shouldn't be behaving this way, and they should all know the rules, and they should all be doing the right thing. And I'm not really allowed to yell at them like in New York, and I can't say bless your heart like in the South, and so I'm just kind of angry that you're not doing what you're already supposed to do. You know, and like, I, it's, inc- I, it's like so obvious to me as I live in this city how irritable everybody is. They're so irritable. And, and it's—and I'm just like— uh, and, they, and you, you go somewhere, and there's signs about kindness, and they have kindness, like, on their little Facebook thing, and they're irritable. They're so irritable, right? And I'm like, just—but it's more than just relax. Like, you have to—kindness comes from a warmth. Without a certain kind of emotional warmth towards other people, no matter how they're behaving, understanding, like, that they're coming from somewhere. And it's not just about whether or not they're performing according to our agreed-upon standards that we've never said. Like, it's about— they're a human being, and, and you can just be warm to them and be kind, right? And you could go through almost all of the virtues in the scriptures, and if you understood them holistically in relationship to the scriptures, you would recognize that all of them assume a burning heart of provident emotion, a fuel of self-control and perseverance, but a self-control and perseverance that isn't cold. One, one that's warm and hot and outreaching and hospitable. And that only can happen when we experience emotional sanctification. It's not—yes, psychology is the clinical way by which we study and articulate issues related to human development and healing. And so, 
I can use all kinds of clinical language and it'll sound like a psychology talk. But you, we could just understood what the Bible means by its own language and we'd realize that the Bible is talking about all of this everywhere constantly. It is our misunderstanding of the biblical language because of our avoidance of emotional sanctification by which we limit what the Bible actually says and think that it's the purview of psychology. That's my second argument. Think about what the Bible says about hearts. This will be short. Think about what the Bible says about hearts. Right? God is pursuing the faculties of our heart and what our heart is. Right? Um, if you begin to read through the Bible, the, the word heart is a function of how God is relating to us in more than 500 verses in the Bible. Okay. One of the most common refrains of God giving his law is he, in the beginning of the Bible, he said, this has to be in you, in your hearts. You have to take it in your hearts. You have to hold it in your hearts. Don't let it go from your hearts. Love it and love me with your heart and soul, heart and soul, heart and soul. Those two are commonly together. Heart and soul, heart and soul. Right? And then in the New Testament, we remember Jesus saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? And one of the things that happens, especially among probably disproportionately men, probably disproportionately Northern European, probably disproportionately a lot of things. We tend to think of heart as the locus of commitment. And we say, to love God with all my heart, it means to be entirely or 100% committed to God. Okay? And it does mean that. Sure, that's—but that's a tiny part of it. Right? The, the question is, what is your heart in the Bible? Like, when the Bible starts, what does that even mean? You see, if you don't even know what that means, how can you know what it means? Right? What is heart in the Bible? And it's the Bible—and because it's not a technical term, obviously it's not your physical heart. Right? Heart, theologically speaking, means that which is at the heart of you. That is like the functional, personal center of your being. It's, it's where all your different faculties come together. It's where Jesus says it's where evil comes out of, but also good. It's the storehouse of what makes you you. It's, it's where your emotion comes from and what you care about. It's, it's for where the energy to be steadfast or to fall apart is. It is, it is formed over time. It's the seed of your character. It is— it is this amalgamation of the center of you, right? And therefore, it's affected by your traumas and by your friendships and by your experiences and by your knowledge. And all these things are mixed around in this thing we call the heart. And because it's this mixture where everything comes together and forms itself, it is the most consequential part of you in that it is the thing God is calling to and calling for. It is from where saving faith comes and is put in. It is how the Spirit works in us. It is the decipherer of conscience and the deliberator of character. It is, it is everything. It is everything. And it runs on provident emotion. It runs on it. And so it can't be dead. And it can't be weak. And it can't be the last thing you care about. And it can't be the thing you're avoiding. It can't be that. So here's, here's what I'm asking you to do for six weeks. I have a ton of verses on— if, Hopefully they posted my sermon to the, that tab on the chat. If you want to read through all these different verses I added about the Bible mentioning the heart. But if you, if you just type in heart to like a search engine online for the New, New International Bible, and you just read through all the 500 verses, you can do that in a couple of days. Just take an hour, a couple, every, you'll find that the heart is so many things. 
And when Jesus says, love the Lord with all your heart, he means so much more than just with all your commitment. Do you understand? And part of loving God with all your heart is allowing God to heal your heart so it grows in size and in capacity and in emotion so there is more there to love him with. Right? So here are a few of the things that we'll put in front of you. One is, believe that. Believe that your heart wounds are not necessarily permanent. Believe that maybe the faculty of the heart that God has given you is capable of so much more than you've ever dreamed. Believe that there is a way to follow God into healing and transformation of the heart so as to build the kind of provident emotion you're going to need for self-control and perseverance and godliness and kindness and love. You got to start with believing that. Yep. Right? Second thing is you got to believe that God is in the driver's seat. Right? This is not just something you're going to do. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through our knowledge of him who called us, by his own glory and goodness, by means of his very great and precious promises, so that through them you can participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world. Do you understand? God's work is the energy, the power, the knowledge, the promises, the goodness, and the glory of all of this. This is not something you're just going to do, right? It's something you're going to—you are going to make every effort towards, and there's going to be a lot of gracious, sweaty striving. Do you understand? But it is God's energy and resources that will take you all the way. So two, believe that it is centered in the gospel and in Christ and in God's resources, not just your own. Okay, so you don't have to be afraid. You will have enough. You'll have everything you need. It's there, okay? The third thing is, is um, recognize that God has intentionally used the social circle to foster the personal circle. So he uses what he calls the body of Christ or people. And so I want to encourage you for the next five weeks to be at worship, virtually or in person, to hear all the sermons, to engage in all the worship, Preferably to go to like a, a coffee hour or something like that and actually interact with people and pray with them. Because one of the things counselors commonly say, and this is something they stole from the Bible, though many of them don't know it, is that individual people are healed in relationships with functional people who have the thing that they're trying to grow in. One of the best ways to grow in, in full-heartedness is to be around people who are increasingly full-hearted. Right? It makes you feel bad for a while, though. Like when you're around people who have something you don't have, it makes you feel bad. Right? But it also shows you the contrast, and you get to see it in operation. You can see it modeled, and you can move in that direction. And it's very necessary. Fourth, we think that the more freedom that we have and the less structure that we have, the more, the more emotional that we can be and the more free-hearted we can be. It's a her- that's a heresy against the doctrine of humanity, what a human being is. Whether you like it or not, human beings are incredibly high-structure creatures. Your life is way more structured than you think it is. And generally speaking, the less structured a human life is, the more chaotic it is, not the more free it is. And that tends to lead to emotional exhaustion and to not be formed strongly of heart and to be personally weak and to not have strong relations. It it leads to a lot of negative things. One of the steps that you can take to try to have the kind of structure increasingly that really leads to emotional strength and freedom is to engage in a quiet time or a time with God regularly, right? So um, Jill and some of the others have taken my sermon material and worked it into a really good personal devotions or quiet time thing. So you can spend a little time with God every day, reading a scripture, 
thinking about it, meditating on it, and praying about it, and maybe journaling a little bit, and just taking a little time and structuring. We're going to talk about that in the third sermon, how your relationship with God is like a fire. You both get the warmth from it, but you also feed fuel onto it. That's what emotion is like. You kind of feed it and receive from it, and it's a it's a symbiotic relationship. You get more heat, you get more from it than you put energy putting onto it, but you have to feed it. Keep up your spiritual fervor serving the Lord, Romans 12 says, right? <clears throat> and then lastly, give yourself emotionally to the things of God in every way you know how whenever they happen. I'll explain that more in the fourth sermon on emotional healing towards full-heartedness. That's all I've got time for today, and I know this isn't some great crescendo ending, but I, I actually believe that for some of you, some of you have been waiting a decade or more to go on this journey. You've been putting it off. We've been avoiding it, and there's no need to. There's so much to be gained, so much in the promise of God, and of all the things God has called in the Bible, um, we read over all the places he's called a healer, you know? You just read over him. He's a healer everywhere. He's always just trying to get to healing. Even when he's judging and breaking things and like, he's like, he's like, as soon as I get done doing that, as soon as I get done making the wounds, I will be the one binding them up. Right? And we underestimate part of our deadheartedness in this culture is our disbelief in the possibility of healing. Even in the healing professions, People barely believe in healing anymore. But you can. Because his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And part of that life is your heart coming to full life. God, as we um, consider this over the next few weeks, as we face kind of our burnout, the stuff that we're feeling, as we— um, recognize other people in our life who are struggling with these things, as we know that our children are going to come up through this stuff with all, the, all of its hurts and all of the ways they're going to be tempted to draw back and not grow in full-heartedness. And um, will you make us a people um, so resilient, so full of life and strength of heart, with huge hearts to love you with all of, so that we can really persevere through anything, whatever comes, and so that we can be kind to your own children, to people in the church, to our own families, but to everyone, and so that we can attain um, to what love really is, so that we could love you, the holy other God who annoys us and seems too far away, that our hearts would be big enough to love you for it, for everything that you are and everything that you do, so that we would really love you for who you are, enjoying you, not just serving you, and caring about you, and also feeling that way about our neighbors, not just serving them, but caring about them and enjoying them. Please, please help us, Holy Spirit, to be excited about it. And please help us just to sing these songs of response as full-hearted as we know how to knowing that you'll meet us with every step we take. Pray in Jesus' name.